Father, we are thankful for the privilege we have of being together this morning as a family for a time of study and worship and fellowship. And we are, are just thankful for the blessings that you have, have bestowed upon us. We are thankful for Georgia's improvement and I pray for her continued improvement. We are mindful of, uh, of these that have been mentioned uh, who uh, need your who need your healing and or your comfort uh, and or the, the release from, uh, from their bondage. Father, we uh, are thankful for the beauty of the morning. We're thankful for the beauty of the world you've given us to live in. We're especially thankful, Father, for Christ. We're thankful for his love, for his uh, example, for his life, for his sacrifice. We just pray that you'll help us to be more like him in all the things that we do and say. We ask you to go with us, uh, Father, through the, through the worship today. I ask you to be with Cole as he brings us a lesson. Uh, be with us as we uh, attentively, attentively listen and grow and mature as Christians. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 21. If you're joining us online, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dan, if you're watching, I'm, I just apologize now. Slash not going to nearly be as good as if you talk, all right? All right, so John chapter 21, verse 1 starts out like this. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. What is the primary and central claim of the gospel? Christ in the resurrection. Christ in the resurrection. Okay, anybody else? Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. A new life. What's up, brother? I'm sorry? The direction in which we're to live. All of these are great answers. And we see all of these answers in various places throughout the scriptures. But I recall your attention to Mark chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, where it says, Jesus began to go out and proclaim the good news. Gospel means good news, right? So Jesus is proclaiming the good news ever before he died. Right? right? It's being proclaimed. It's being preached. Ever before Jesus died, ever before he rose, ever before he said, hey, you need to walk this way or live this way, the good news is being proclaimed. In Acts chapter 2, we see this dynamic when Peter says, in, I'm sorry, in Peter, when Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Right? But he doesn't finish there. The claim isn't just that Jesus rose. Jesus raising is the proof. The claim is this. He has been exalted in verse 33. This is Acts 2.33. Exalted to the right hand of God. The primary claim of the gospel is that Jesus is king, that he is Lord, that he is reigning, the evidence for that is that he rose from the dead. we got to get this right. James says, the demons and devils believe and they tremble. Why do they tremble? They know what's coming. They know what's coming. What does it mean for the demons and the devils that Christ is exalted to the right hand of God? What does that mean for them? They're going in the other direction. You remember when Legion was cast out 
right? What did he say? What did he What did he say to King Jesus? Don't send me to the abyss. Don't send me to the abyss, right? Thank you. The demons and devils believe and they tremble. When we tell people about the gospel, what we're telling people is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, exercising all authority and power. That he reigns. The proof of this is his resurrection. Now think about it. When the book says, call on his name to be saved. When the book says you must believe in Jesus. John chapter 3 verse 16, right? For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I lapsed into the King James Version a little bit there. But, believe in him. Believe what? Believe what? That if we follow him, if we serve him... If we come to ourselves and give ourselves over to the king, then what? Do we have destruction in waiting? Is destruction waiting for us if we do that? What is waiting for us? Paradise. Salvation, paradise, right! The primary claim of the gospel, the good news is that Christ reigns. Because Christ reigns, we can have redemption. Because he shed his blood, there is a new covenant in which we can have redemption, in which we can have the forgiveness of of sins. We don't have to be like the demons and devils and tremble because we know destruction isn't waiting for us. But of the person who says, well, I can come to God on my own terms. If the primary claim of the gospel is that Christ is reigning, and when Jesus looks at people and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, we better listen up. Because if we don't come to Jesus on his terms, guess what? We're thieves and robbers. You're not coming. You're climbing over the fence. And we know those who climb over the fence won't be at it. If we need to open up this other section, ladies, we can. Uh, Brother Jim, would you open up this last section here? We've kind of filled up a little bit. All right. So the primary claim of the gospel is that Jesus reigns. The truth and evidence of this is the fact that he rose, right? Because that was his claim. I've heard lots of people, and you've probably heard this too. You know, I, I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that Jesus was just a good guy. Who's ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. Yeah, I just experienced this the other day during my, my normal life. Uh, if you didn't know this about me, I do, I do Kung Fu, and I was doing... Yeah, I know. It's Look, I can do a handstand, y'all. Can you handstand? All right. <laughs> today, not today, oh, um, wearing the wrong outfit. It's all about the outfit. Oh. <laughs> all right, all right. But I, I was sitting there, and we were talking about this stuff, and somebody said, Jesus is a good guy. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's back that up for a second. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say he was just a good guy. What did Jesus say? I said, if you're going to have an opinion about Jesus, you've got to deal with what he actually said. And what Jesus actually said was that he was the Son of God. So we're only really left with three options when we consider Jesus, okay? Jesus was either the Son of God, a nut job, right, or a liar. Those are your options. Now, I don't think he was a nut job. He said a lot of good things. In fact, the entirety of Western civilization, the last almost 2,000 years, has been centered around Jesus, Right? He's the man of the hour, the man of history, the man of millennium. So I don't think he was a nut job. So he's either a liar, 
or the Son of God. You don't have another option. Jesus appeared. The apostles were witnesses of it. He did not remain in the grave. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. And so he appeared to his disciples in verse 1. We're not going to get this far, guys. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as uh, Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. When you're angry and upset, what do you do? When you're frustrated, angry, upset, things haven't gone the way you want, what do we do? Separate ourselves from other people and just go off and be by ourselves. Okay, so if she's upset and angry, she don't want y'all around, right? right? That's what she just said. Huh? We pout. There's such a thing called stress behavior. And stress behavior is our reaction, how we deal. When we are under stress, we retreat into these various activities. So, Brenda, for example, she's going to run away from everybody. Barbara, excuse me. This is why we need name tags, y'all. I can, I can read them from back here. All right, so we retreat into these behaviors. We retreat into what we know. Barbara is going to run away from all y'all, okay? Brother Bobby is going to pout. I'm going to suck my thumb and pout in the corner. That's right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do nothing. That's my stress behavior. I run away from everything. I'm very similar. I run away from, or I find other things. My wife can testify to this. I find other things to do. This week has been, I've been living in that stress behavior, right? We see with the apostles, they're going to go back to what they know. They're going to go fishing. These were fishermen before Jesus called them. They've seen Christ dead. They've seen him executed. This is all stressful stuff. So they're going to retreat back. And imagine set for a second, too. While the other apostles fled, what did Peter do? When Christ was dragged out of Gethsemane, when he was arrested, what did Peter do? Did he just run away? No. He hung around in the back. He followed. He, denied, he ended up denying him. Not only that, but Christ told him he was going to do it. Right? And he said, not me, Lord. Since I've been here, I've, I've talked to two different people about being careful what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, says the Lord. Anything else, James will say, anything above that is from the enemy. Anything beyond that is from the enemy. Ooh. Do we need, do we need to repent maybe a little bit here? Huh? I know, look, I'm a planner, guys. I like to make plans. But whenever I make a plan, I also recognize that Jesus is Lord. I'm his servant. He's not my servant. I'm his servant. And so I make plans, and I imagine a lot of times God watches me do that, and he goes, oh, that's cute. Look at all the wonderful things he's planning. Look at my son. He's so cute. He has no idea. I guarantee you, when y'all hired me, right, I got here. So in preaching, one of the things they tell you is they say, uh, you know, when you get to a new place, when you get to a new congregation, the best plan is not to make any changes for three years. Just hang around. Don't make any changes. Watch. Take notes. Because you don't want to offend anyone. That's not the point, right? You need to establish yourself, right? You guys need to know that the millennial you just hired isn't crazy, right? I'm going to lead you off into, into you know, the wilderness somewhere. So I was like, okay, not a problem. I got hired. I came. I was like, all right, I'm not going to make any changes. I'm just going gonna, gonna to just get to know the congregation. 
I'm going to focus on getting to know people. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to write out if I see something that I'm like, well, maybe we could we could tweak that or maybe this is a ministry opportunity we're not taking advantage of. I'm just write it down. And I still have that notepad where I was writing that stuff down. I was hired in February 2020. You know what happened in March? Y'all remember? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It seems like it seems like a lot of people forget things that happened recently. I don't know. It's, I've been watching the news a lot, but I remember what happens. Everything got shut down, right? Everything got shut down, and all of a sudden, I didn't have a choice. I had to start making plans. I had to start making changes, right? And it wasn't just me. The elders worked with with us. So this was a team thing, and we started doing the online classes. We started doing the podcast. We started doing all this stuff. So I didn't have the luxury of waiting, right? I didn't have the luxury of just sitting there. And it's okay. The point is, it's okay to make plans, but we have to be flexible. We have to be okay when the Lord says, no, this isn't how it's working. And this is what Peter experienced in the upper room, right? He said, no, Lord, that's not what I'm going to do. He said that a lot. Did you, did you, have you ever looked at how many times Peter said in the scriptures, no to God? <laughs> it's an interesting study. He said it a lot. I love Peter because he was like, he was like awesome in his wrong. He was like zealous in his wrongness, right? He's like, no, Lord. No, Lord, all the time. I can remember three different times that he said it off the top of my head. It's very interesting. So Peter especially is stressed. He's upset. He says, I'm going to go out here to fish. The disciples will go with you, right? They're following Peter. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, do you have any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Does anybody remember in Luke chapter 5 how Jesus called these guys to begin with? What he did? It's the very same thing. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said, Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. Have you ever swam 100 yards? Anybody? No? You? You, brother? Was it, was that like a like an easy swim? No, we were in the sea and swam between the How simple was that swim? Was that... So he had prepared for six months to swim a hundred yards and to deal with the cold and everything else. Out of that. Wait, I'm sorry. How, how far did you swim? Wait, what? Four miles in the current. Four miles in the current. Okay, we're gonna leave Sid alone for a second. I thought I could. I thought going to handstand was impressive. I gotta work on it. I can't swim four miles. Swimming is not an easy thing. A hundred yards is a long way, okay? My question is, what are you willing to go through to get to Jesus? Think about Peter here. Okay? He's told, he's denied the Lord. Right? He's denied the Lord. He hasn't talked to the resurrected Lord and, and been restored yet. That's what this story is about. So he's denied the Lord, sees the Lord, and he runs to him. And he's got to swim. He's got to get over this obstacle. But the obstacle isn't just physical. It's the spiritual obstacle, too. He's done the wrong thing. Anyone in here still sin? 
Uh, I, I, I gotta check. You never know. You never know. Yeah, right, it's better to ask than to presume. All right. In your sin, where do you run to? Where do you run to? She says to Jesus. How many of us run to Jesus in sin? I mean, this is where we should go. It's where we should run to. Temptation. I mean, look, in temptation, we should run to Jesus. But what about when we fail? Do we still run to him? How many of us have sinned and then immediately run to Jesus? I see some nods. Good. Because that's what we should do. Sometimes you have to be hit over the head with it first before you realize it. Well, you know, sometimes we need that David and Nathan moment. You are the man. Ah, it was me. I really did do it. Yeah, I think he knew. I think when David was committing adultery with Bathsheba, I think when he was on the roof watching, I think he knew then. I think when he committed adultery, he knew. And I think when he killed Uriah, he knew. I don't think for one second David, like, forgot adultery and murder are unforgivable. Right? He just didn't act on it. Yeah. He yeah. didn't run to Jesus or run to God at that point. So. No, he didn't. He tried to cover it up. And I, is that what we do? And that's kind of the point of this, right? When we mess up, when we fail, right? Look, guys, we're not the world, okay? God makes it very clear the world is enslaved. They're not going to do anything else other than sin. They are slaves. You're a slave to whom you obey. The world is enslaved to sin, and they're going to keep doing it. There's nothing. They can't stop themselves, okay? They are shackled to it. But as Christians, we're not like that. As Christians, we are free. God will say, you can't be tempted. Like, you can't be dragged into it. You can be tempted. But within temptation, there's always a way of escape. So when we fail in temptation, it's not like the world that's a slave. We didn't take the opportunity to escape. Knowing that, do we still run to God? And I want to encourage you to do that. Even, even at the cusp of failure, even after failure. Don't run away from him. Don't run away from him. We're not the world. We don't have to be afraid of God. Remember what John says in 1 John about setting your heart to ease in his presence. Does anybody remember what he said? How do we set our, e our heart to ease in the presence of God? You remember what John says in 1 John? God is greater than your heart. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Brothers and sisters, we're going to do stuff wrong. We're going to mess up. Sometimes we're not going to realize it. Sometimes it's going to be, it is going to be accidental. Sometimes it's going to be, I just didn't, I just didn't realize, right? I was doing the wrong thing. I didn't understand that was the wrong thing. Other times when we sin, we're going to sin and we're going to know it's the wrong thing. We're going to know that we shouldn't do it and we're going to do it anyway. That's going to happen. His indwelling spirit uh, stirs us when we sin. Sure. If we're, if we're paying attention to that stirring, we have his indwelling spirit. Yeah. That stirs us <laughs> to repentance. Yeah, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, If the spirit does not indwell you, you are none of his. It's really that simple. I know there's a big debate about this, and we can talk about it later if you'd like. 
But Romans chapter 8 makes it very clear. If the Spirit does not indwell you, you do not belong to God. Now, we can talk about what the Spirit is and how that works and everything, and I'm, I'm totally open to that conversation. But you have to deal with what the Word actually says. We can't deal with the figment. So when we sin, we need to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's by His blood that we are forgiven. God did not call you because you're a great person. God called you because you were a great person. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. It's certainly true for Peter as well. So Peter heads into shore. There's nothing that can stop him. He gets there. Jesus said to him, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we know that Jesus appeared to his disciples a whole lot. And what we'll find as we go through the Gospels is the Gospel accounts don't always add up as far as appearances of Jesus. Okay, And that's not a big deal. A lot of people want to say it's a big deal. It's really not. For witness testimony to be true, if they all lined up perfectly, then we would probably disregard it. It's considered manufactured at that point. The fact that everybody kind of remembered differently is, is very good, right? John has already said there is more that Jesus did than the entire world of books is capable of holding. We know that Jesus appeared to his disciples multiple different times over a span of probably about 40 days, okay? So it's not a big deal. When the Gospels don't exactly line up or add up, actually a good thing. We don't want them to. We want these different stories. Also consider John is likely the last person to write. So he's looking at what Peter said through Mark. He's looking at what Matthew said. He's looking at what Luke has diligently researched and written down. He's looking at all these things and he's looking at the situation he's in and he's saying, this is what I need to tell you. These are the things about Jesus that these people need to hear. Okay? And so that's why we have these different renditions. Okay? So when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? How many, uh, how many different types of love are there? Five. Okay. Ooh. Ooh, you're brave, sister. Okay, what do you mean? Five. She's like, I'm never answering a question again. I know. Never do this again. Well, from a book I've been reading, oh. yes, um, there's uh, love of acts, uh, affirmation. So you're talking about the five love languages. Yeah. Very good. So actually, it's very interesting, right? Because this, this is how do we express love. That's what Dr. Chapman in the five love languages is talking about, the way we express love one to another. And his theory is that everyone has a love language, right? It's a language that we are native to and that we speak. However, not everybody's love language matches up. So if I, for example, if I want to love my wife, then I need to speak her language in love. So my wife's love language is, as acts, is acts of service. So I try to run around the house and do various things for her so she doesn't have to do them. Now that we've got a three-year-old who is not yet potty trained, changing that three-year-old's diaper is one of those things I know that really helps her out. So I do it quite often because I love my wife, right? My, my, uh, my uh, love language is words of affirmation. And so my wife, right, tells me what a great job I do. It's why I have such a big head. But 
but, but so that's how do we express love, right? But there are actually different types of love, and this is where the English language kind of fails a little bit, right? In the English language, we just say love. So my son, who is nine, at some point here, pretty soon, I'm sure, he's going to come to me and he's going to tell me, I love this girl, right? Probably when he, I, I'd expect it around 13, maybe, maybe 12. I don't know, y'all have kids and grandkids probably know better than I do. But that's, that's my expectation. Does my son actually love this woman? <laughs> no. No, what is he actually, what's actually going on with this child? He likes her. Likes her a lot. There's an infatuation, right? She's pretty. He, he, he admires her, right? So all, all of those types of things. Well, I, I missed it. What? She can run fast. She can run fast. I hope she can. He can't run fast. He needs. He needs help. All right. So this word in the Greek says love, right? Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he says, yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Now, in English, this all looks normal. But in the Greek, two different words. It's like Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than anything else in your life? Do you love me to the point that you will put me first in your life? You were unwilling to do that not too long ago. Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I like you a whole lot. Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. Two different words, meaning two different things. The love that Jesus is referring to is agape love. Agape love can only be described by Jesus. He is the clearest picture. God is the clearest picture of agape love that we have. It is a love that puts him first in all things. But specifically, it's a sacrificial love. Jesus displayed, displayed, displayed this love for you by dying on the cross. Brother Dan, have you obeyed the gospel? You washed in his blood? Okay. So Brother Dan, it is 100% accurate to say that Jesus, when he went to the cross, had Brother Dan in his mind. How important do you think Brother Dan is to Jesus? Pretty important, huh? Brother Vincent, how about you? You made the gospel? Yes, sir. Okay, so it's totally appropriate then to say that Jesus went to the cross with Brother Vincent in mind. Had him in his mind. How important is Brother Vincent? Why do you think it's so important to God that we treat one another with love? Because when Christ was getting beaten, when he was getting scourged, when they put that crown of thorns on his head, when they nailed him to the cross, the creator of the universe, Christ had to utter a single word to put it all to an end. And he refused to utter that word because of men like Brother Vincent, and Brother Dan, and all of us in this room. Because Christ rose, because he sits at the right hand of God, we know that he has all authority. And he chose to do this, to die this death for each one of us. And then we turn around and tear one another down. Bring discouragement. 
speak to one another in frustration and vexation, refuse to forgive one another, keep records of wrong. I mean, you just go through 1 Corinthians chapter 4 through 8, you can ask almost any of our kiddos, they have it memorized, and they will tell you what love is, how sacrificial love is expressed. It's patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And it keeps no record of wrong. I know so-and-so said this, but, you know, I've got this record over here, and they keep messing things up. The type of love that we're called to, love one another and love God, is a sacrificial one. It's the same standard that Jesus had for us. No surprise. God wants us to be like him. I understand we're in John chapter 21, so we've already been through John chapter 17. What is Jesus' prayer for those who believe on the word of the apostles? That they be what? One. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And it's by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. <laughs> it's not right doctrine. Notice what he said. What does that mean? We can just throw all the doctrine out? Of course not. Of course not. He's king. We have to obey his word. But if you're holding on to a doctrine that doesn't end with you sacrificially loving one another, your doctrine is wrong. Sorry. This was the point. That we be one. That we be united. And so, of course, Jesus, having already died for Peter, having already shed his blood for this sin, is coming back after Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you like a brother. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than anything else? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me like a brother? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you like a brother. A lot of commentators, depending on where they're at, will say that John's use of phileo and agape here is irrelevant. I don't believe that for one second. John had a vocabulary of about 100 Greek words. And he is the deepest writer in our New Testament. Bar none. A lot of people think it's Paul. I disagree. It's John. Now, it's opinion. You can disagree with me. You can be wrong. It's okay. But <laughs> the point is here, John is choosing his words very carefully. Jesus is choosing his words very carefully. John is accurately relaying that to us. What did Jesus say when the man came to him and he couldn't, the man came to him with a son who was, or a son or a daughter, I can't recall who was a son or a daughter, but came to him with his child who was demon-possessed. And the apostles could not drive out the demon. Couldn't do it. And so they bring this kid to Jesus and the man says, if you can heal him. And Jesus says, if, if, if you only believe, it'll be done. And the man says what? Believe. 
Help my unbelief. Guys, God is in the business of meeting us where we're at. That does not mean that we can just do whatever we want. It isn't a license to sin. It's not a license to disregard what's in the book. It's not a license to any of that. But we need to understand that our Father in Heaven loves us dearly and deeply. He loves us more than I love my son. Now, what do you think I would withhold from my son? Who thinks that I'd be willing to give my life, my life, for my son? Yeah, pretty much right. I mean, and if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. There's not a thing on this planet that could possibly happen that would not make me immediate, that would threaten my son, that would not make me immediately stand in the way. Why do we think less of God? We mess up, we sin, and we think God doesn't want me. We mess up, we sin, we think there's no forgiveness. Or worse, we look at God and say, yeah, 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 God, I know, I know you offer it, but I, I'm going to get it right. You ain't going to get it right. You're always going to mess up. As long as you're stuck in this world, you're going to mess up. It's going to happen. And rather than trusting in God's grace and his forgiveness and his goodness and his love, understanding that the Father is a better Father than we could ever wish to have, that his grace is more radical than we ever be comfortable with, we look at his grace and we go, there's no way. We put God into our box rather than accepting what the word actually says about him. Jesus looks at Peter here, Peter having royally messed up, and notice he's still not rising to the occasion. But if you think you could do any better, you don't have a realistic view of yourself. All of us in this position do the same thing. Jesus says, we, we look at Jesus and we say, I'm not going to do it again. And Jesus goes, oh child. When I forgave you, when you were baptized, called on my name, I forgave you, I purified you, I knew every single time you would sin again. God is not confused. He is not surprised. He knows. The question we have to answer is, whether given the opportunity, we're willing to take our broken lives back to God. And unfortunately, because we don't have a proper view of God and his love and his mercy and all of these wonderful things, what we do is we withhold ourselves from the only one who can actually help us. We withhold ourselves or we come up with our own list of checkboxes. And instead of measuring ourselves against Christ, we measure ourselves against the checkbox. And we say, see, I'm a good Christian because I did this today. Check. I'm a good Christian because I did this today. Check. What'll happen in that case is you'll get broken. Because here's the thing. Whether it's God's law, whether it's a law that God has created and given us, or whether it's a law we create, you're going to fail to adhere to it. We are always going to break the law. We are lawbreakers. It's what we are. It is only by his grace and his mercy, his love and his compassion that we are redeemed. 
And this is essentially the story of both the Old and New Testament. Christ reaches down to where Peter is at, comes down to his level, and restores him. That's how it works. Nowhere in Scripture are we asked to rise above what we are. That does not mean we have a license to sin. I am not telling you to go sin. What I'm telling you is we serve such a God that despite of ourselves, he saves us. And I'm very thankful for it. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. According to, uh, I believe it's church historian Eusebius, Peter was executed uh, by the Roman emperor Nero. He was uh, hung upside down on a cross because he refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Did not feel he was worthy. All of the apostles, these men who ran away and were terrified when Jesus was first captured, they all eventually were executed, with the exception of John, who I believe John was boiled alive, and then that didn't kill him, so they sit, they exiled him to an island, if I'm recalling the history correctly. I might be wrong. Might be at peace, peace. I might be wrong. But, uh, and he eventually died uh, a peaceful death, although I don't, I don't know how peaceful that would have been. Um, they all uh, suffered greatly for the gospel, something that they weren't willing or able to do uh, while Jesus was still alive. So Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When, G when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> uh, my children do this. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever, okay, so my kids, right, they're, they're all playing or running around, and then they'll run up and they'll say, well, I want to do this, right? And I'll say, no, you can't do that. Well, Isabel is doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, don't worry about Isabel. Worry about yourself. And really, that's what comes to mind when I read these things. How often did the disciples compare themselves and ask who is the greatest? You remember? Many times. Many times. Yeah, it happened actually quite a bit. It was something they were really concerned with. Do we do that? Well, I can't preach as good as a preacher, or I preach better than that preacher. Don't they know that? Right? We get these types of attitudes. Man, I can sing better than that guy, or I can't sing as good as that guy. And we judge each other against each other. Guys, I'm a beggar. I'm a beggar. We're all beggars. That's all we are. There's nothing inherently good in us. There's nothing by our own power and authority that we, we have righteousness. It is by Christ, by his sacrifice that we have it. Don't compare yourselves to anyone else. You're the only person you should ever compare yourself is to Jesus. And I hope you're self-aware enough that you walk away from that comparison going, nope, not there yet, still got a long way. Because that's how we should all feel. That's how we should all act. 
Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that his disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? It is this disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We probably have, I was talking to Dan about it the other day, and he said, we probably have about three weeks of Jesus' actual life. His ministry lasted three years. There's a whole lot that he did and said, and it's, it's just not written down. But what we have is enough. The Gospel of John was written specifically so that you would believe that Jesus rose, is the King, and the Son of God. That you could take that to the bank, bet your life on it, and make him Lord of your life. That's why we have the Gospel of John. Timothy will say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is useful for rebuking and encouraging and all of those wonderful things. Peter will say in 1 Peter, we have all that we need for life and godliness. We have what we need. There is no excuse. All right, that's all we've got for you all today. We